Hey there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Album Addicts, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we're joined by a fellow podcaster, Tom Quee of the Alpha Metallica podcast, the Tom Waits podcast, and the Battle Rap Resume podcast. Tom, welcome to Albumatics. Hey, no, great to be here, Ray, Aaron. You know, big fan. Like, I'm obsessed with doing my own podcast. I'm obsessed with podcasts that are obsessed with songs. Like, love the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, great. So, Excellent. where are you coming to us from? Oxford, Oxford, UK. You know, uh, university capital over here in England. Quite a small town. Been podcasting here <laughs> since I've been here well, for <laughs> so many years. So, you know, a lot of history's gone down in this living room. A lot of Metallica podcasts, like you say, and whatever. But um, yeah, over in Oxford, UK. Very nice. You are the awesome. first guest to cope by from this on this podcast from outside the United States. Oh, nice. So, nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very have, glad uh, to have you on. No, thank you. Like with Alpha Metallica, like people might know me from that, like Metallica podcast, and I have guests, and I obviously had you on, Aaron. Yes. And we went through uh, one, which is a great episode, and then subsequently, I think at the end of the episode, you mentioned this podcast, and I, I think on the air, I was like scrolling through, I was like, oh yeah, these are some cool episodes, and then yeah, listen to it, and uh, yeah, love the show, the Saint Anger episode included. Uh, that that was a pretty. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. yeah sorry, like, Tom. I actually really liked it. You hated "Say Anger," man. That was crazy. <laughs> I was like, I was like, no, these are good songs. What? Like, yeah. I don't know. Hate would be uh, yeah. yeah hate, hate's pretty hate, accurate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just brushed them aside. You didn't even give them a chance. You're like, this is trash. This crowd. Like, okay. Like, but no, the high and dry episode, the rain dogs episode, the police episode. Like, you know, love the show, man. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So on this episode, we're going to be reviewing Van Halen's 1984 album, 1984. <laughs> Tom, let's start with you. How did you discover Van Halen in 1984 in particular? Yeah, I was trying to think about this. So I do remember this quite closely. I'm not, you know, I'm a little bit younger. I'm 27. So I remember getting into music around 2004 and, you know, sort of 12 in that era. And I remember being on holiday and seeing the Van Halen, uh, Best of Both Worlds, The Greatest Hits with the Frankenstein cover, the CD, and sort of being, oh, who are Van Halen? And just kind of them existing as this fourth. It's a bit like Metallica. Like, there's kind of this mythic thing you just sort of know about. But, you know, it's like America. It's like, I know what it is, but I've never quite been there. It's like, you kind of just sense that Metallica or Van Halen, a band like that exists. I got the debut eventually. Uh, adored that. Still one of the greatest debuts of all time. You know, up there with Appetite and Boston, etc. As like just a, a, flawless, a flawless masterpiece. And then I went on holiday to Canada and got 5150 which I also actually really like. Uh, I think a lot of the 5150-isms are actually in 1984. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree, yeah. Like a lot of the guitar playing that Eddie explores and, you know, the, there's new ground broken as well as lots of old stuff revisited. But yeah, I think it was the... I think it was Christmas of 2007, so I would have been 15, and with my Christmas money, I went into Birmingham town and I bought two albums. I bought the Trivium's Crusade, which are, are you guys familiar with Trivium at all? I've heard yep. of them. I don't think yep. I've ever really heard them, but I've heard about them. yeah kind of Florida-based supposed Metallica clones. They're actually really talented musicians, Matt Heafy, especially their sort of lead guitar singer. But yeah, I bought that album, Crusade, and I bought 1984. And I remember being quite challenged by it, actually. I remember being caught quite off guard, uh, not just by The Simps. Like, that didn't really bother me because I was a 15-year-old in 2007. It wasn't, like, selling out or anything like that. It was just, you know, part of the sound, part of the evolution. But just by how expansive a lot of the guitar work was, especially, like, it's very outlandish and confrontational. Now I realize in the best possible way right right i mean I, I can't honestly i don't remember what i mentioned about my history with van halen on when we did van halen too but yeah. 
I will say this. I first heard with this album, I first heard Jump in 1984, right around the time that we were moving from Connecticut to Massachusetts. And so I kind of like always associated with that time period. I liked it, but that was the only thing I knew about Van Halen. Then, you know, I saw the video for Hot Teacher on TV. I thought that was hysterical. Fast forward to 85, Crazy from the Heat comes out, and I saw the David Lee Roth videos. I thought that guy was just like, you know, it is like in the end of the Hot for Teacher video where they say he becomes a game show host. That's what he was. Yeah. And I thought that was the coolest thing. Definitely had some stand-up stuff going on there. Then it goes to that, like, 86, 5150 came out. I was not super impressed at the time um, because I was so used to, like, that weird kind of... Van Hagar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so used to that Roth kind of sense of humor, and I wasn't necessarily getting that. Yeah. No. Off of Hagar. I guess Hagar does have his own kind of sense of humor. Hagar's more sex-crazed than funny, like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and Dave's got that kind of, like, borscht-built comedy kind of thing, like, underlying his stuff, yeah, which yeah. is really kind of great. Mm-hmm. Then a buddy of mine in 88 made me a copy of Diver Down, and I thought, wow, this is awesome. These guys can just do – they can play anything they want to. Yeah. And uh, right on the same time, I got 1984 and it became like my holy grail album it was like it just changed my view of like it diver down kind of like changed how i kind of looked at musicianship i think 84 kind of bumped it up like 10 more notches all right for me and then i was just i would been hooked ever since yeah yeah we covered van halen before on the podcast a couple of times so i won't go into too much detail except to say that the 1984 album was my gateway to van halen i'd heard a little bit of the first album years before but that didn't quite stick at the time but in the year 1984, when Jump came on the radio and then the video for that song came on MTV, I was just completely consumed by it. It just grabbed me, stuffed me into the trunk of its car, drove off and took me prisoner in its dungeon for years <laughs> afterwards. It was the launching pad for what became my next great band obsession, the mighty Van Halen. Nice. Now I'll provide some basic facts for this record, and don't bullshit me, you use Wikipedia too. <laughs> 1984 is the sixth studio album by American hard rock band Van Halen, released on January 9th, 1984 on Warner Brothers Records. It was produced by Ted Templeman and recorded in 1983 at 5150 Studios, Studio City, Los Angeles, California. It reached number 15 on the UK Albums Chart, and number two on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart, and is certified gold by the BPI and diamond by the RIAA. Next, I'll give you the band's lineup card. We have Michael Anthony on bass guitar, synth bass, and background vocals. David Lee Roth on vocals. Eddie Van Halen on guitars, keyboards, and background vocals. And Alex Van Halen on drums and background vocals. All songs on the album are credited to the entire band, with one little exception, which we'll okay. talk about. Right on, right on. Okay, let's begin a track by track analysis of this album. We lead things off with the title track, 1984. Tom, what do you think of this? 
This is an interesting one because this song, I mean, this album especially pushes a lot of boundaries in terms of Van Halen's compositional capabilities and what they were going to become. It's no longer that sort of atomic punk gutter virtuoso trash that they had been, um, you know, in, in, in so many ways. And they could have, this really is an intro to Jump. You know, Jump could have been a five minute song and this could have been included, but they they are giving these concessions to the crowd. And as a piece of music, I think it's wonderful. I think it's Brian Eno, Thomas Dolby-esque. You know, it's colourful and inquisitive. It's almost like something from Disney's Space Mountain. Right. And there is, you know, these measured slow arpeggios of notes. Like, it's not kind of wild, eddy instrumental. It's just kind of chords, uh, you know, erupting. It's, like a, it's quite a sea, serene, tranquil piece that teases Jump and The Simpsons. It works perfectly to me. Uh, I, I think it's ideal. All right. Ray. I should, it's funny because like I might have difficulty separating myself from my 14-year-old self and review some of these yeah. songs objectively. But, okay, I'll, I'll try to – I don't know. I'll do what I can. Uh, the synth swells in the beginning of the song, when I first heard this, blew my mind completely because wow. I was not expecting – I mean I knew I could I knew the keyboard part and jump, but like this is like – weird science fiction music. I, mean, I was a huge fan of like uh, the black hole, Logan's run star Wars and star Trek. I used to like, I love those movies or, um, uh, 2001, the space oddity, odyssey, odyssey, odyssey. Woo. <laughs> space oddity. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> Anywho, lack of sleep folks, not a good thing, but that's what it reminded me of. It sounded like, it, like the, like the score work to some kind of like science fiction movie. And I just kind of get lost in it. I knew, I knew that Eddie was revered as a guitarist, but I didn't realize he could actually play keyboards so well. Or at least that's how my kind of 14-year-old brain interpreted it. And my 45-year-old brain still kind of interprets it. So it's a great composition. It's an A++ and a great segue into the next song, like Tom was kind of saying. All right. Yeah, uh, it's kind of Eddie noodling around on a new synth he got. He's getting some cool, weird, spacey sound. You've all been saying that. Like Tom said, it's basically the intro to the next track, and I, I actually like it too. It's very short, a minute and eight seconds, but I'm going to cheat like a motherfucker and say it's my least favorite track. It's <laughs> a real song, mm. I know, but hey, this is my podcast, and I say <laughs> it's Aaron Stinky Stinker. It's like I don't even know you. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? Well, what else am I going to say? Is, what, what? Fair enough. We'll agree. I'm, I'm a cheater. I agree to disagree. <laughs> the next track is Jump. Tom, do you like this one? I do. I do. It doesn't annoy me. It's not overplayed. I haven't heard this at carnivals and fairs since the 90s. Like, it doesn't have that sort of aspect to me. It's quite a song that I've heard comparatively quite recently. There's something quite shit-eating about the keyboard part. You know what I mean? There's something quite... <laughs> the the raw offense, like, just for this is a single. These are the... You know what I mean? We're employing these sort of modes. That's not to say throughout the song there aren't moments of brilliance through the keyboards. It's worth noting that this isn't kind of lifeless. Even though I do like them kind of craft-worky, robotic sort of stuff, it's still very colorful and earnest and, and quite complex. I think especially the end of the solo that follows the guitar solo. And uh, I, I just think rough is so important here because 
ultimately the song doesn't have the soul of something like the end of House of Pain or whatever, where Eddie can really pull the leash. So Roth does a lot of the heavy lifting. He's got to sell it. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I think he swings on this. All right, Ray. Oh, what can I say? This is one of the few songs like my dad and I have in common. Like I remember him borrowing my 1984 cassette tape to go driving around so he could like listen to this one song. Um, <laughs> Eddie's keyboard parts. Well, if you think it like Sunday in the Park, that's a pretty dark keyboard song. Yeah, the Cradle of Rock is uh, kind of a dark Fender Rhodes kind of song. This is like probably the most uplifting thing at this point in their their career that I had heard, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I guess he played it on an Oberheim OBXA or something like that. Yep. I don't know what the hell that is, but it sounded great for this album. Did he do that in the other albums too? Is it all the Oberheim afterwards? I want to say yes, but I'm not sure. I, uh, I'd have to look it up. Well, I guess Daryl Hall claims that the, the progression was stolen mm. from uh, Kiss on My List, which I have not heard in a long time. I was almost tempted to go back and listen. I was like, no, no, I don't want to know how the magic trick is done. Yeah, well, <laughs> he said that Eddie told him that. Oh, really? Yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, cocaine was a great thing in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, Roth's vocals at the time were uh, nothing like I had ever heard before. Honestly, I didn't know what to make of the band because I'd never actually seen them. So I didn't know like what he was or who it was all about. But you know, I was expecting this like, maniac jumping around the stage <laughs> yeah. like he did. I love the music on the pre-chorus. It kind of gets a little bit darker. The, the, uh, ain't you see me here? Or can't you see me standing here with my back against yep. the record machine? Finally some guitar. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And then they hang on the five chord right before they go into the chorus, and they really let that kind of tension build, and I kind of like that. And then, bam, it comes in with that chorus. Uh, the solo I've always loved, I've heard that was spliced together like from a bunch of different other solos. Yes. Mm. And that was Don Landy. Let's give him some hats off, because that's some great splice work. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah it, does feel, it does feel kind of shoehorned in, but like to be honest, most of Eddie's solos benefit from having this kind of boxy, he's barely getting the line out kind of playing. Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah that's a good point. It's almost like i can still play guitar guys yeah yeah yeah. it does feel a little bit shoehorned it's a concession definitely yes and supposedly the ending guitar part he plays the intro to their 1991 standing on top of the world there's a couple times where he's kind of like plagiarized himself throughout his career oh yeah but i'm not gonna hold it against him i'm not a particular big fan of that of the 91 song but uh it's kind of it's hooky i mean there's a reason he went to it yeah and, and recycled it so that's what i got for jump i dig it all right Holy fuck, Nugget Doggy Doodle, do I love this song. It's a keyboard track, and if that keyboard line isn't a ridiculously catchy earworm, I don't know what it is. Eddie Van wrote it in 1981, but the rest of the band passed on it at the time. Ted Tupperman revived it and asked David Lee Roth to listen to it, and he did. He was riding in the back of his car with his roadie driving. He ended up liking the song, and he came up with a lyric inspired by a news story about a guy threatening to commit suicide by jumping off a high-rise building. And then he just kind of modified those kind of words to mean about jumping into love. <laughs> like we said, the synth line was played on that new synthesizer, and that synthesizer was used on a shitload of records by other bands, too. Oh, okay. And like Tom said, there is guitar in this, too, but it's kind of buried a little bit, except for that solo. Like you said, it was spiced together. Then it goes in that little keyboard solo, which just basically consists of Eddie playing our pet goes one after the other pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Dave gives the vocals plenty of attitude and even has a creepy moment with, how old are you? Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> I love the pre-chorus melody too and the jump backing vocals answering Dave in the chorus. 
Now, there's some backlash against this song because of the success of it obviously inspired Eddie to continue with the keyboards and place less emphasis on his guitar, which would kind of fully blossom in the Van Hagar years. I mean, yeah. I can see that. And that makes yeah. me a little bit torn about it. But this is the tune that introduced me to Van Halen. I've heard it a zillion times. I love the video and I never get sick of it. I can't help it. I have a ginormous soft spot for it. One last thing. Have you guys heard the Greensboro disaster? No. No. What's that? In in uh, 2007, the band was you know so it was the re- one of those reunion oh, wait, shows. Oh, his guitar is really. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you did play his, that. <laughs> his guitar is out. Of, Eddie's guitar is out of tune. They play the the jump synth line, which I it was a backing track, I think. Yeah. And then Eddie's guitar comes. In, it's like <laughs> it's so ridiculously hot. It's hilarious. And he, they they go through the whole song. They can't stop. So yeah, they no, go through no. the whole song. The oh, show must man. go on. And I gotta give him credit for oh, that. Oh man, yeah, 2007, Greensboro, North Carolina. Look it up on YouTube. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> This was the album's first single that reached number seven in the UK singles chart and number one on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. Jump! <laughs> the following track is Panama. Tom, your thoughts? I mean, in many ways, the ultimate Van Halen song. I, I think this kind of has all the ingredients that make me love Van Halen so fucking much. Like, obviously, it has that tone. Like, I think Eddie's got one of the greatest guitar tones ever, full stop. This is probably his best song ever in terms of his tone. It's just got that wet, crisp, slightly delayed, phased, overdriven. It's clean. That, that intro, like you mentioned Jump before, for me, it's this intro as it builds into, you know, the riff kicking in after the harmonics. I, I cannot help but have a smile on my face when I hear it. Absolutely. Ray. Wow. Um, the intro is just Eddie and Alex, and they, it's the, like you said, it, it's, got, it's the classic riff with classic Eddie-style tricks all over the place. you got some dive bombs, you got some pick scrapes going on there. And it ends with that muted string section on the E, D-sharp, and B. Um, it's kind of it's a little turnaround thing. Or I guess since they tuned down a half step, it'd be like E-flat, D, and B-flat. Right. But uh, it's def- that's another one of the classic kind of Eddie hooks. The main riff is almost like a twist on an ACDC style vibe, and Eddie claims that like the band asked him to like write kind of like an ACDC or something to an ACDC style beat is what okay. he said, and I think he pretty much succeeds. The pre-chorus is catchy as fuck. They have that little weird descending part before he goes back in the new string part, that down air arrow, down air arrow, which I. They, they've, they got a bunch of those in this piece. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Chorus is definitely catchy and badass. Eddie's guitar solo starts out with some kind of like Chuck Berry-isms a little bit, and then he does in that bending, tapping part, which I vaped that a bunch of times unsuccessfully, but <laughs> I vaped it in a lot of my own stuff. Yeah. And I always love the breakdown after the solo. It's um, amazing. Yeah, it really is. And like he even like throws in like like a little bit of like, of like an F major kind of thing, like he does like on little guitars. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool, but... Um, they spoken word rap about the Lamborghini engine. <laughs> this is fucking funny as yeah. hell. And the ascendant part leading back into the last run of the chorus is cool as shit. And the please don't stop me now. Mike and Dave just sound great together. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know I just I stopped for breath towards the end. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Great. Just when you thought Van Halen had become an 80s synth pop band, they hit you with this. I love that opening riff too, with Alex's slightly syncopated drum beat that transitions to another excellent riff that also doubles as the chorus riff. Dave jumps in, the track just becomes a classic Van Halen rocker with a sing-along Panama chorus. Eddie plays that short tapping solo, and then the song breaks down to a slower, quiet groove while Dave speaks seductively about reaching down between his legs and easing the seat back, <laughs> complete with whoosh noises that are Eddie revving up his 72 Lamborghini Miura S. I originally thought the lyrics were about describing a woman using car terminology, yeah. but Dave said they're about an actual car, a race car named Panama Express. But, I mean, really, Dave's coming onto a car? I guess I think the metaphor fits. <laughs> Sammy would definitely come onto a car, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I fucking love this rousing rocker, and it was the third single that reached number 64 on the UK singles chart and number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. Tom, Van Halen isn't as big over there, are they? No, I and I think one of the reasons is, I mean, they're appreciated, definitely. They just didn't tour much in Europe. Like, I remember my guitar player many years ago, he loved Van Halen. He said that he saw Black Sabbath play a free-nighter, and the only night he missed was the one that Van Halen didn't support on. So, you know, I mean, they're there, uh, and they had a few appearances, but it's not like they came over and did Wembley, like, you know, Guns N' Roses or Bon Jovi did. They just, I don't know, they seem to be a bit homebirds in that sense, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Because you think this music would appeal. Oh, yeah. Hell no, yeah, definitely. The next track is Top Jimmy. Tom, let's have it. You know, a prototype in many ways to a lot of the songs on here in the sense that they give Eddie so much space to just have fun and experiment. And in the the kind of, I can't think of many other guitarists that are as, you know, as showy and flashy and as virtuosic as he is, maybe like a Guthrie Govan type figure who is still really compelling and interesting to listen to. And that's not to say that he isn't obviously carving a very clear melody in this intro, but he's just got a fancy, pleasing way of playing. I love the curious harmonics, the high pitched squeals and that forceful funk guitar leering quite predatory in and out and the hits from alex before it goes really rapid fire um i think that intro section is incredible the verse as well with the sweeping behind uh, a lot a lot of the changes it's kind of a warped surf instrumental that eddie goes for and i like when he gets a bit more deep fried in that sense there's a breathless attack to loads of the melody i love what it's based on as well i love that roth chose to uh, you know dane that legends i'm sure you mentioned but Again, another really expressive investigative solo. It's not a mainstream solo. Like, it's not something that Poison would do. It's quite challenging, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, just the whole thing, really. You know, maybe not the most memorable of tracks, and I've read quite a few reviews and stuff. I actually read the original Rolling Stone review that got released sort of the week it came out. Surprisingly great review, like some pretty arch criticism. I'm pleasantly surprised there. So, yeah, go check that out. But, yeah, they, they didn't really talk about this one. A lot of the reviews kind of dismissed this one. But, you know, this 1984 band, to hear these four guys make music together so well, I, I, I've got to listen to everything. And I think this is, this is an incredible addition. All right. Great. 
Honestly, back in the day, I used to skip this one. This used to be on Fast Forward's Greatest Hits for me. And it's mostly because I was so obsessed with the with Drop Dead Legs. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was like, I, I just didn't get this. I think that's another case where, like, I, I didn't know what the hell the lyrics were about. And I thought that, oh, Jimmy! <laughs> really kind of corny. That was, like, the last second. Like, let it go. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Take it's it easy, man. I, <laughs> I'm a little neurotic, okay? <laughs> a lot. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's grown on me over the years. Eddie says it was played on a Steve Ripley stereo guitar, and I kind of miss that. Like, uh, What is that? I have no idea. He said there's like a bunch of switches and knobs and buttons okay. all over the fucking thing, and he, somebody had given him one to, to putz around with, and that's kind of what he was doing. Is he, was, he actually wrote this on another guitar, and it was tuned to D, A, D, A, C, and D. Hmm. Um, which I, I've, heard, I've heard of Dad Gad, but I've never heard of yeah, That's, that's yeah. impenetrable. That's fucking Eddie tune in line. That's mad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, not, we're not meant to play with that tune in line. There's no point. <laughs> so he takes it and he plays it on the Ripley guitar, and it just kind of blew up from there. And it turns out Top Jimmy is this guy named James Connick, who was like the lead singer of this band called Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs. Yep. And Dave knew him from this club called Zero Zero. He also worked in some place called Top Taco outside of A&M Records. That's how he got the nickname Top Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Roth knew him from playing as a bartender at Zero Zero. And I guess Roth became like a financial backer of this bar. Back in the day, it was like the hip swank kind of place to be. And he and a bunch of other people like kind of bought into it and pumped it with money. And it was his cocaine loft, essentially. <laughs> he would show up, hang out with these Hollywood types, and they'd be like, I just want to go upstairs. And then he would like blow his brains out. Yeah. But I do like the guitar harmonics on the intro. Eddie says if like you listen to this with headphones, you can hear him paying back and forth. Now I've never done that, but yeah. I would like to do to to get that full effect. I've never had like a kind of like sound system actually make that work. Mm. I like the triplet response to the vocals in the verse section. It kind of reminds you of like Finish Which Started a little bit, like just maybe the, the tone of it, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the clipping this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like I, I, Tom, I think you said this is kind of this whole album is almost kind of like lets you know what's coming down the road in the, the Van Hagar era. Oh, yeah. All of the sloppy vocal harmonies and the chorus and the second verse section. The guitar solo is full of Eddie tricks, whimmy dive bombs and harmonic squeals. And the only my last piece on this, <laughs> this is funny. Maybe this is a reason I didn't like it. Maybe yeah, for some reason my 14-year-old mind just couldn't get my head wrapped around it. My buddy Ian thought the last verse section, <laughs> he thought they were yelling, Top Jimmy is the stillborn king. The stillborn king? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is R- that? Roth would say that, though. Like, it's a drunken slur. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, Okay, all right, he's the stillborn. And if not listening to it now, I know it sounds really nothing like that, but it just struck me as odd and fucked up. But yes, as time has made the song come back around, and I do enjoy it. Yeah. I like the, oh, Jimmy! <laughs> Very cool intro from Eddie with all the harmonics, like we've been saying. It leads to a track unlike anything I've ever really heard from this band before. It's a rock tune, it's fast-paced, but Eddie's playing clean licks, and the music has a certain throwback vibe. Like it could have come from the 60s almost. It's got an almost like R&B feel to it, which I think goes in line with the whole Top Jimmy lyric thing. Because mm-hmm. his band, I guess, was more I, – I I'm not familiar with Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs music. But I guess it was like they incorporated R&B type mm-hmm. stylings into their music. Okay. And obviously the lyrics are about that. You covered that, Ray. But other musicians also would get in there and jam with him, including Tom Waits, Tom. Wow. He's yeah. like one of those like legends that never quite made it, but yeah. everybody knew who he was, and he was Ooh. a big deal, I guess. 
James Paul Konsek, rest in peace, Top Jimmy's dead. Mm. Dave obviously had a lot of respect for him as he was the baddest cat alive, driving all the women crazy. They love the way he rolled his eyes, too. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Anthony's Sweet High Harmonies are featured on this track, which I love. And Alex makes this tune swing like a mother. I love his track. The following track is Drop Dead Legs. Tom, let's have it. This song reminds me in the best possible way of Prince's uh, I Want to Be Your Lover. I don't know if you're familiar with that track. Okay. But in the sense where it's a six-minute track where the last, you know, kind of 90 seconds, two minutes is just a giant solo to end the track. And I love when songs do that, like Die Straits tend to do that a lot and and, and Guns N' Roses, stuff like that. But um, I just think it's outlandish and audacious and just so outside of the norm for a band, uh, you know, of that kind of time to do and so individually blazing. And it begins almost formulaic in a way, still satisfying the classic rock, kind of typical arpeggios, kind of Ario Speedwagon, I've Got a Feeling-esque to a certain extent. And then that stomp enters. That, to me is, again with the keyboards, a huge thing that will go forward, that 5150 wide, expansive kind of riffs. Hear them a lot on Best of Both Worlds and, you know, Summer Nights and that sort of idea. Um, And, you know, Eddie is on fire, of course, and Roth is thundering throughout this. Like, it's one of his real kind of, you know, front-of-the-boat performances. Love him on this. And Eddie's legato throughout as he builds between sections and pauses and hangs is fucking crazy but of course the best thing about the song is that instrumental outro uh, which is stunningly well done swampy and stealthy with that lazy slide and it keeps building with guitar and guitar and it's got a kind of I don't know it's got a languishing element to it like Eddie's not really trying to impress anyone it's so listenable to some real stinging ideas and uh, yeah can't get enough of that part especially all right right the reason I skipped Top Jimmy man because I just fucking love this song I have never gotten sick of it like the first time i heard it like my jaw was just on the floor and it became like an obsession for rewinds great it's yes, definitely yeah. without a doubt on this one eddie's not playing the frankenstein guitar in fact he doesn't even play a lot of the frankenstein guitar on this album he was playing some sort of kramer on this one he breaks out a, a 58 gibson flying v wow yeah i don't that, that was like I, I don't i don't remember hearing about him playing that on any other albums but i do know on this one and the next one he plays a gibson flying v uh the intro kills me every time i hear it he uses similar triads that he kind of uses in 316, too. I actually kind of prefer this version of it <laughs> than 3. Although 316 is sweet, I guess, in a way. It's probably one of the better tracks on For Unlawful Collateral Knowledge. Eddie said, like, this is his kind of rewrite of Back in Black. Uh, he called it a jazz version of Back in Black. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's like, like, but he's a huge ACDC fan from yeah. what I understand. <laughs> the cowbell in the song. <laughs> I love... I guess um, when I think of Cowbell, I, I, some people like go now because of Saturday Night Live. They'll go to like uh, Christopher Walken. Yeah, sure. Uh, in the Blue Witch Cult. But uh, actually, he, uh, Dweezil Zappa, when he was like just started recording stuff in the studio and like, his his dad knew Eddie, he played him like Eddie, like one of his tracks. And Eddie was I told him, 
just needs more cowbell. Yeah, that's <laughs> so funny. I think that that was actually the inspiration for that skit. But that's just, you know, <laughs> between the three of us here and our podcast listeners. <laughs> I like how they kind of revisit the intro after the first section, but they just kind of beef it up a little bit. And then between 120 and 125, Eddie's got that those triplets. That mm, yeah. uh, 126, he's got that little guitar interlude. And Alex just lays down solid grooves throughout the song. I mean, it's, it's like as simple as and driving as Phil Rudd, but not as like aping him. You right. know, it's just right. it's, it's Alex's take on a steady groove. I love the six. And when you talk about that final passage, the the final part, the final section, it's just like the fucking sexiest ass groove. You got mm. those sixteenth notes on this, the hi hat or not? Yeah. Is on the ride? Somebody the, the ride. The bell of the ride. ride. But oh, holy crap! And Eddie throws in some guitar gasm groans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, fucking! I just love the shit out of this song. And what I guess is, Alex didn't even have like a full kit in the fifty-one fifty studio. He had like a, a Simmons electronic kit. Wow. And they recorded like the fucking symbols separately <laughs> and put it over the top. Wow! This song kicks all types of balls. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this sucker's got a slithering hard rock groove, fucking badass riff that struts just like the lady described in the lyrics. And I totally dig all the little percussive fills Alex sneaks in, especially with the cymbals. Pay attention to him. He's doing a lot more than you might think at first. And it gives the song its swagger. Now, this is where I make my case in the great David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar Van Halen lead singer debate. The lyrics to this song could have been written by either one of them. I mean, for Dave lyrics, they're not particularly clever like they usually are. They're basically just describe some hot lady he wants to uh, get acquainted with. If Sammy Hagar sang this song, he'd make it sound like a dirty old perv who's ogling his 13-year-old niece and drooling down the front of his salmon-colored beach bum teacher. <laughs> Dave is not a gifted singer, but he makes up for it with style, with attitude. He makes these words sound sexy. He has so much more personality and charisma. You know that he's the one walking out of the room with that girl while Sammy gets to sleep with a worm from his empty tequila bottle. <laughs> And I don't hate Sammy. I like a lot of the Van Hagar stuff, but to me, there's just no comparison. David Lee Roth, at this point in time, was a rock god. This track ends with another cool riff over which Eddie solos out. You guys described all that stuff, but damn, it seems just as he's getting cooking, it fades out. You just, mm. just don't do that to Eddie Van. This is one of those deep cuts that a lot of Van Halen wackadoodles go nuts over, and it sounds like all three of us are no. in that camp. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Hot for Teacher. What do you think about this? Uh, I, it's between this and Guns N' Roses' Night Train uh, that, in my view, is the greatest rock song of all time. Nice. Like, I'm not even going to say favorite. I'm just going to say the one that achieves so much. Again, you know, similar to Panama, is distilling these raw ingredients down to what you want. Like, you know, 
you know, I, I love, for example, uh, Steve Vai's work with David Lee Roth, and I love Paul Gilbert's work with Mr. Big, and I love this lead-based rhythm playing that Eddie pioneered. And it's really cool to see with this song how much the band really do prize, obviously, technical ability. So we just ended with Drop Dead Legs with like a 90-second solo. Now we open with a 30-second drum intro, one that, <laughs> you know, anticipates the song and builds and builds and, you know, is crazy playing from um, Alex there. Then the Eddie tapping sequence, which, again, is just absolutely wonderful intoxicating and the way that he kicks in the way for the legato and it kicks into the main riff he's always seemingly playing like a minute form of catch-up the guitar's almost chasing the rest of the rhythm section just has this kind of runaway energy to it that never really fails to excite me like when i listen to it i'll always get charged up by it i always think it's fucking brilliant like when we were doing this album and prep for it so i listen to this song regularly anyway like i was just intimately familiar with this track and there's so much of it that's one that's, that's great. Like, you know, the descent down as well. Dave's spoken word interludes. Like, what, what fucking frontman can do this ever? Like, even Freddie Mercury didn't do this sort of stuff. Like, this is really hard to pull off in a rock song convincingly. And it, it's still funny. Like, let's do it a thousand times. I'm sure you both have as well. But it's still kind of enchanting on a certain level. There's this rambunctious roughness to it. I mean, this to me just ticks every box. Like, one of the ultimate songs. Right. Oh, mom, you know, I'm not like the other guys. <laughs> I'm nervous and my socks are too loose. <laughs> Sit down, Waldo. <laughs> the video was friggin' brilliant, yeah. man. I, I, that's one thing that I noticed too. is like Roth videos were always funny. Even his, so, at least for his first solo stuff, it was really funny too. And when they lost him for that, that was like, eh, yeah, okay. Um, but I remember being at the Big E one time, which is like a, uh, in, this, in the Northeast. It's a kind of like a local bunch of the states get together and have this huge, humongous fair. And uh, they had this this ride. It was like it's called the Rock and Roll Ride or something like that. It's, it basically kind of goes up and around, and they like would blare like rock music or something like that. And I was on. I just jumped on there, and this song started coming on. And I looked at the guy who was operating the machine. He's playing air drums. Where I look at the guys running two of the game stands, the other side. The one guy's got the machine gun game. He's playing air drums. The guy next to him at the dart game, he's playing air drums. <laughs> and like five or six other people are just like all trying to like just like do air drums to this intro. Yeah. It's funny. It was all hell. The intro was awesome. It sounds to me like a dragster. Like, you know, you see things like like old cars beefed up or muscle cars starting up. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. I think that's what he was trying to imitate. Well, he succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> beyond well whatever he is we did it he pulled it off and then when he pulls on the toms a little bit it's almost got like this gene krupa sing 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 kind of thing playing in the background hmm. and then come eddie comes blazing in on that 58 flying bird with the tapped arpeggios i can never figure out the solo break though right before it goes in right that kind of goes between the instrument part and then the whole band kicking in i always fuck it up every time i try to do it <laughs> the spoken word section is funny as hell it kind of like tom was touching upon Ed's guitar part in the background, the kind of clean channel stuff is really good. And then it just goes back into that atomic shuffle with the distortion thrown on. The pre-course has always cracked me up, but, but my education was never quite – my homework was never quite like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great punchline to throw in, you know? Yeah, definitely. And Roth's humor was this, – this song is definitely a, a showcase for the Roth humor. His soul, Eddie's solo is brilliant. He's got some trim picking in it and um, some tasty blues licks. And then he has that like a little ascending thing from 320 to 323 going to the higher end of the guitar. And of course, they got the epic bombastic rock ending at the end, which they pretty much have trademarked. <laughs> and yeah, you can't go wrong with this song for side two starter. Yeah. If someone randomly ran up to me, stuck a gun in my face and said, quick, what's the ultimate Van Halen song? First, I'd piss my pants. And then I'd say, hot for teacher. 
This track has everything you could want from this band. Alex Van Halen, holy fuck those drums. When I first heard this, I was like, how is he doing that? He only needed four bass drums, because why settle for just two? And he maintains the frantic pace of the track, and he does not let up, only taking his foot off the gas for the little interlude sections. He proves he belongs in the conversation of great rock drummers. He's always been underrated, in my opinion. He's famously got one of the great snare drum sounds of all time. Michael Anthony, allowed to play around a little bit with the bass lines in this track, and he proves he's up to the challenge, especially the fluid lines he plays under the guitar solo. Mike's doing a lot of stuff Ooh. under there. Mm-hmm. Eddie Van Halen, he's got probably my favorite all-time guitar tone. The main riff is hard as fuck, and the solo is lengthy and one bad mother. He shows you why he was the king of guitar at the time. And, of course, Diamond Day, projecting the attitude and confidence that made him a great frontman, always keeping a sense of humor and a sense of drama. There are plenty of vocal Davisms in this track, and he plays it up in the quiet interlude sections where he's imitating a student. What do you think the teacher's going to look like this year? Looking at the lyrics now, you can sort of go, yikes, especially as you hear more and more stories about teachers having affairs with their students these days. <laughs> but that doesn't diminish this track for me. This album came out when I was 14, and when I heard this song, I was like, that's it. I worship this band from now on. Fuck Kiss. The video was hilarious, and the band played up its goofy sense of humor. They looked like they were having more fun than anyone else in the world, and we found out what they would be doing if they hadn't become rock stars. That's hilarious, too. (laughs) This was the fourth single that reached number 87 in the UK singles chart and number 56 on the Billboard Hot 100. The next track is I'll Wait. Give us your thoughts. Eddie Trunk better cover his ears because the simps <laughs> are back on Van Halen. And Eddie Trunk, by the way, I love you. Stop getting annoyed about simps on 1984 because you're wrong because he's like, oh, yeah, it's the introduction. It's like, no, I think it was women and children first that first had simps on it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they've been part of the band for the while. It's not unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. And whatever. I don't know. He gets a little bit hurt over that. But those pipes of peace funnel in and it builds shape. And, you know, it's quite involving to a certain extent. But the problem is, if you're using the keyboards as the main instrument, ultimately what they can attest to, so whereas an Eddie solo would just be wild and you know what it's going to do, for keyboards to work, they just have to kind of establish this groove, this march, you know, the drums fall in line, Michael Anthony's... I still kind of laugh when I hear his bass. Like, even though it's great, I'm still kind of, it's quite silly and dated and plodding. But that's not to say that it doesn't work in the song. And there's really kind of intelligently crafted pieces by Eddie there. And it's not just kind of cookie clutter root notes. Michael McDonald was apparently a co-writer mm. that um, I think you teased before uh, on this. I recently got into the Doobie Brothers, actually. What a Fool Believes. I only heard that song like the other week. Genuinely, I'd never heard it before. And that's a fucking... Yacht Rock classic right there. I love that song. <laughs> and, and I love his work with Steely Dan as well. I think I knew him from that, Band Sneakers, etc. So yeah, it was cool that he was on this. It does have a certain kind of 80s balladeer flair to it. It has a crossover appeal that I don't think it achieved as a single, but definitely could have done into those markets there. Eddie Solo, 
is terrific. It's like he almost makes up for the keyboards by having a really lyrical, lucid solo that you can proper vibe out to. It's not too frenetic. It's classy and elegant. And, you know, Roth is in commanding form. He's not cracking jokes here. He's being quite sincere and heart on sleeve. And in that mold, he succeeds. All right. Great. But my favorite part of the song is when Roth goes, I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's my only Michael McDonald reference Here for the song. <laughs> you got some moody ass synths in the intro and you can kind of tell that Eddie and Alex were definitely brought up with like classical music and like, they're both trained on piano in the beginning. Although Eddie claims he couldn't read music. He would just like play piano based on what he watched his teacher's fingers do yeah which is somebody who plays piano very badly myself i was like wow okay thanks thanks you know it's like watching you know eight-year-old czechoslovakian girl rips through mr crowley and she does it like note for note on youtube (laughs) and you just like sitting you're looking at your guitar like i just suck yeah this sucks um you got some cool cymbal rolls in the intro for that kind of like add to the tension it sounds like alex is grabbing the cymbal a couple times in it too just kind of like kind of cut things off which is pretty decent it's a direction change in the album. It's kind of like a push come to shove kind of direction change, like on Fair Warning. Fair warning. Ed's favorite part of this intro, supposedly, is a fuck up. Because <laughs> like I said, what I had heard was that they didn't couldn't get like a whole drum set into the 5150 studio. So they had the Simmons electronic kit and they had to overdub the cymbal stuff. Point 59, or 59 seconds in, Alex was supposed to hit like a uh, crash cymbal to like kind of punctuate things and like get the whole sections are but he didn't he went straight to the hi-hat and you can hear it. it's like once you like hear it you can't unhear it okay but for whatever reason eddie thinks that that's hysterical and he thought that they should just leave it in and they did leave it in like that all right and then you got another catchy ass chorus that just seems like van halen just shit those out back in the day like yeah. they throughout their career up to a certain point i like the 16th notes on the keys that right before they go to the solo Mm-hmm. And Ed Solo is actually, I think, Tom, you kind of it's, it's kind of subdued, you know. It's kind of for him at this point, it's really introspective. Yeah. It's more blues than Eddie would like. Well, not really more blues because he could kind of get bluesier on some of his other stuff, but yeah. it's not like that frenetic hot licks kind of blues. It's more kind of probably closer to his idol, Eric Clapton, right. than his other stuff is. This like kind of Tom and I both mentioned this kind of direction he was going in. His solos get more and more like this in the successive albums afterwards. This is a great song, man. Yeah. Uh, Michael McDonald, like we said, he has the writing credit on the UK single of this, so his name didn't appear on the US version, which I thought was kind of weird. Mm. I don't know why. Mm. Another keyboard track, including keyboard bass. and But this one works well, too, for me. It's more atmospheric and moody. And it's got a bit of a darker vibe than, say, Jump. And the synths are a little bit more layered and dense. And actually, this begins like a darker turn on the album in general. Alex is heavy on the beat, but he uses the rototoms quite a bit that gives the rhythm a lighter sound to contradict the heaviness. Eddie's guitar makes an appearance on the solo, and it's kind of moaning quite a bit. Like you said, it's not his usual fast-tapping stuff. It's got some good whammy bar work on it, though, at the end especially. The lyrics are inspired by a Calvin Klein pinup ad with a woman wearing men's underwear, and they describe the narrator's obsession with the model. It's a catchy chorus with good Michael Anthony harmonies, as usual, and I really dig this one, too. Dave and Ted Templeman didn't want this song on the album, but Eddie and engineer Don Landy pushed for it to be included, so they got their way. This was the second single that reached number 85 on the UK singles chart and number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. I heard this quite a bit mm-hmm. back in the day. I, I, I didn't even hear it until I got the album. Yeah. Kathy Ireland was my uh, I'll Wait girl. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember her. Oh, wow. Sports Illustrated. Yep. The penultimate track is Girl Gone Bad. 
Tom, what do you say? So again, you know, as with the chat we're going to get onto finally, House of Pain, we see a regression to a type of Van Halen street punk. You know, again, we have the harmonics like Top Jimmy being infiltrated by Haywire Riff. And I'm not complaining. It's just interesting that this format follows and it's not a different type of song. And arguably, this is kind of the dominant mode here. Like you see a song like Drop Dead Legs as well. It is Eddie sort of branching out in in so many different ways on this record. And, um, you know, I I enjoy this track quite a lot, actually. I love the repeating of ding, 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 the building tensions with the bass note thrumming. And, you know, like Hot for Teacher, Eddie's playing... I mean, it's so, it's weird how different the Panama riff, chorus riff, the ACDC riff sounds, because he never really, really plays that way, and that's a kind of standard rock way to play. He always plays with these wide, romantic chords, where he'll sort of pick a few notes out and lead somewhere else, always augmented by these prickly patterns, and, you know, Eddie just has a lot of fun on this one, and the way Dave comes in, and those backing vocals, like, you know, in the back as Dave is crooning heavily and sorrowfully, it's really superb dope solo section as well I love when it's like the bass just supporting the guitar underneath I hate a rhythm guitar under a solo if it can help it I much prefer just hearing the bass there uh, really cool post solo section as well with Ross chanting like some sort of shaman and you can hear him deep in the mix at certain points if you listen closely a- again not necessarily the greatest song on the album but still knockout alright Ray holy crap this song has like a buttload of tension in the beginning of the song, it's awesome. It's kind of like, and I think what kind of drives that on is the and a one, and a one, and a one pattern that like Alex is playing on the mm-hmm. cymbal. That melody that Eddie's playing with those artificial harmonics is just kind of eerie as shit. And at, at 17 seconds and 23 seconds, to me, and this is just me, it sounds like he's almost quoting Diary of a Madman. Mm. And it's kind of funny because there's kind of like a history between Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen. They're like the two competing guitarists back in the day. Yeah, they were rivals. Yeah, no, definitely. At one point, there's a story about Randy Rhodes asking Eddie Van Halen, you know, I was like, how do you play like this, like a ruption like that? And Eddie was like, I'm not, I'm not telling you. And there's also some weird altercation at one point where like Randy was in a car with um, a friend of his and like Roth and Eddie had driven off to him and like they started like bad mouthing him. So the, the chick... That Randy Rhodes is hanging out there went over and slapped Roth. Oh, yeah. damn. <laughs> yeah. Somebody had said they had actually saw, like, right around the top, right before Randy Rhodes died, they saw Eddie in, like, Amoeba Music or, like, one of those, like, L.A., like, record stores with a copy of Diary of a Madman. All right. So I guess he got over it. There was some <laughs> grudging respect there. Yeah, yeah. No, and Zach Wilde at Dimebag's funeral said that, like, Eddie Van Halen, like, got in it. He was, like, shit-faced. And he's yeah. like, if it wasn't for guys like me and Randy, you know, Dime wouldn't be around or some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are you going to do? Um, but back to the music. Tom, I think you kind of mentioned it, too. There's, like, that driving, that, like, droning telegram dun, 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 mm. in the background that really kind of adds to that tension. Um, then Eddie and Alex lock in at the 39-second mark. And the Zeppelin part kicks in at the 44 seconds. And it goes back to that kind of, like, telegram section with the a drone but heavier at 57 seconds the verse section talks about a girl who went to the big city and is basically waking on the street which i get a kick out every time i hear him say waking on that song uh he's got that weird little breakdown between the verse and chorus one of the famous eddie van halen breakdowns just kind of come out of nowhere you can't really explain it but it sounds cool as shit yeah you got cool ass gang vocals on the girl that's always been awesome in my ear and they get some David Lee Roth with some weird kind of almost plant-esque moans right before they go into the guitar solo. Uh, Eddie says it was inspired by Alan Holdsworth. I don't really – I've listened to some Alan Holdsworth, courtesy of Rob Bork. And I guess if you want to know more about him, he's actually a pretty good fount of knowledge on uh, Mr. Holdsworth. 
great solo and um then we got back to that back to that eerie intro and then we had that drum fill outro which is kind of odd but yeah cool yeah yeah the intro to this simmers kind of with alex's shimmery cymbals and eddie again <laughs> utilizing the harmonics then we get that nice stuttering transition i love that part and then it goes in that dirty mid-tempo groove rocker with a darker melodic vibe. Eddie said he wrote the tune in a hotel closet while his then-wife Valerie Bertinelli slept. Michael's bass pulses underneath and offers nice melodic counterpoint during the solo, which is kind of rough and all over the place, keeping with the downbeat vibe of the song. Alex really pounds the skins, and even Dave's vocals sound like they're straight out of fair warning. This track could easily been on there, in my opinion, with orgasmic Dave-isms. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> like, almost like Robert Plant trying to imitate Robert Plant. Lyrically, it's about a prostitute on the Sunset Strip Dave had become fascinated with, and regular listeners of the podcast know how much we dig songs about hookers. Oh, yeah. I love this track. I feel it's kind of an underrated gem in the Van Halen catalog. I agree. And that brings us to the final track, House of Pain. Tom, what do you think about this last one? I think it's interesting that this is the closing track, actually, because, you know, the album begins by looking forward and, you know, really digging deep and breaking new ground. And this is quite regressive. I believe this is like an early song of theirs or some of the riffs. There's like a Kiss demo that has it on there. And it it does certainly feel that way. Again, out the gate, it has a very gnashing riff that kind of attacks you. And there's a very forceful verse as well with Michael sort of clinging to Ed underneath. The solo is wild. The solo, it's just kind of the next level in soloing. It comes at you from all angles. It's like 4D. I love the way that uh, pinched harmonic comes down the whammy, just kind of sails over the listener as it kicks in. It's pretty wild. And it's kind of like a, you know, a bridge, really. This kind of, you get taken via that solo to that ow, 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 that groovy as hell riff, that new riff. Their roth is echoing, you know, ah, ah, and... I love how it builds and it's a crime really that it ends and I've always been turning it up for years trying to hear the final bit because Ed like splits off to a new solo yes he does <laughs> as it fades away uh-huh. yeah. Yes. Yeah. oh yeah you're right yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that bugs so the shit just, out of me too I don't know where the hell he goes but that whole section I love they just kind of it reminds me quite a bit of what uh, Paul Gilbert would do solo Mr. Big etc kind of keeping it low and then the whole band just crashing in and him kind of building on the theme that's one of my favourite moments of the entire album is probably the last couple of seconds of it uh, when he's absolutely wigging out uh, love this track Ray 100% A++++. I love the shit out of this song. Uh, Eddie says the intro and the verse sections were different from the 78 or the early early song that they had, but the main riff is basically the same thing they had. Almost kicking around exactly the, the same. Yeah. And it's just mean sounding. That's what I get out of it whenever I listen to it. And then it goes into, uh, before it goes <laughs> into that main riff, there's that one section in the intro. It just, the guitar riff sounds drunk. That, <laughs> like if you've ever been completely pissed and like walking down an alley or something like that and you can't really get your footing. You're stumbling. Yeah, that's what this kind of reminds me of when I hear that intro. And the cymbals, when they get to the verse section, do you notice how the cymbal just sounds kind of washes over everything? It's like not like a steady pattern. It's just like, a yeah. Which is 
interesting choice. Alex does that kind of stuff a lot. He loves his cymbal washes. Yeah, yeah. No, he definitely does. Yeah. And, and this is a, a cymbal wash wet dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> you got that ascending riff that he plays that kind of answers the verse section. It's kind of dissonant and awkwardly cool. Like every time Dave says like, burn, air, and air, it just kind of doesn't really go where you would think it would go. Yeah. But uh, once again, we kind of get that Zeppelin kind of gallop at the minute 45 mark and some great solo work by Edward. And at 220, we get cowbell and riff and cymbals. And like Tom was saying, it's just this—it's just a slinky guitar riff. It's fucking awesome. Mm, and I wish they if they could if like extended it another minute and a half. I would have been happy yeah, with me that. Too. I could hear more of that. So that ending is the, my favorite part of the song. Yeah. As a, as an album closer, it is an odd choice. I agree, uh, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like we've been saying, the song goes way back to when the band first started. It was on their first demos, and it was revived for this record and given totally different lyrics. So this continues the darker themes and darker feel of the latter part of the album with a mean, chunky opening riff. I said mean. It's got that (laughs) chugging main riff and Eddie filling in all the sonic gaps with his cool, interesting feels. He's so good at that. I so love his rhythm playing. Dave sings of a broken relationship in which the woman wants to leave, but he can't let go. He knows it's a disaster, but he still wants to hang on, however destructive it becomes. His tone, again, is darker and more serious. The last half of the track is a showcase for Eddie to rip it up, soloing like a madman until the music is slowed and brought down for that new section let off with a new riff. Alex's cowbell and Dave's mm -mm. You've all been (laughs) saying that, too. And then the band just ride that new groove with Eddie continuing his fiery soloing into the fade-out. And it does annoy me because I want to hear more, just like you, Tom. (laughs) My brother-in-law, Matt Fleming, who's been a guest on the podcast on a couple of our Van Halen episodes, actually, he said that this was the tune that drew him into Van Halen. And I think it's a tough, hard-rocking beast of an album closer. Yeah. It's burly. (laughs) (laughs) A fine and burly tobacco. (laughs) Okay. Now the track-by-track is completed, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is trapped in a house of pain. (laughs) Tom, what are your final thoughts on Van Halen's 1984? I think it's an astonishing record. I think it's something that will never not seem fresh to me when I return to it. I'm just... You know, my jaw drops at these songs. I love all early Van Halen. I don't know whether I like this more than the debut. I think I probably like the debut actually more because um, it's just a bit more classic, I suppose, and and, and do up to a certain extent and a bit more casual. But this has got a frenetic uh, genius to it. But yeah, I've got to give this a five. I've got to give this a five. All right, Ray. Uh, I'm gonna have to agree. I'm gonna go with the five. Um, this this was like the measuring stick for me for a lot of other bands. Like uh, is like how I rate about an album in my head, the impact that it had on me. And this has been like one of the high point albums that like really kind of changed my life. A couple of months before I started listening to Van Halen and this album in particular, I was listening to like a lot of top forty Casey Kasem kind of stuff. Yeah. Which now as I go back, some I, I find I actually still do like, but um, not as nearly as much. I mean, this band and this album in particular was like my gateway drug to hard rock and heavy metal. I mean, even t- tracks like Top Jimmy, which were definitely on my Fast Forward's greatest hits at the time, has grown on me because they're, they're so catchy. And uh, I think what it was, Eddie was my, one of my first musical heroes, not just guitar heroes, just musical heroes in general. And I think it's cool that he was so equally talented on keys as he was guitar. And he just showed that me that you could have a variety of flavors to play with, not just one flavor. As much as I love the Ramones and I love ACDC, I mean, they're vanilla. 
I mean, they're the best tasting vanilla you've ever had, but they're, you know, vanilla. They, they, they mm. found a thing and it works. But Van Halen found a way to come at you with different things. Yeah. And um, yeah, admittedly, they had like certain things that you know they're going to go through. There's like a Van Halen sound. There's, there's solo tricks that Eddie uses that, you know, are his standbys, his go tos. They, they were just so all over the place. And this one is just like, this is them at their peak for me. Yeah. So five it is. When the 1984 album came out, Van Halen was already a huge rock band, especially in the United States. But this album put them into the stratosphere, sporting a cover created by graphic artist Margot Nehas depicting a cherub smoking a cigarette. The album was kickstarted by the first single, Jump. Jump is the band's biggest hit, and you could not escape that synth hook at the time. It was played everywhere. MTV really plugged into the band's wild, party-hardy image and constantly had their videos in rotation. They had it all. A charismatic sex symbol frontman, a pyrotechnic guitar god, and an underrated rhythm section that held the whole thing together. The only thing that prevented the album from reaching the top spot on the charts was the pop phenomenon that was Michael Jackson's Thriller, for which Eddie Van Halen played the memorable guitar solo in the song Beat It. The band's tour for this record was a wild success, but all of this massive dysfunction that had seeped into the band over the years and was rapidly reaching a breaking point. Quite simply, David Lee Roth and Betty Van Halen especially were getting on each other's nerves. Their relationship had been unraveling for years, with Eddie wanting to spread his wings and branch out his musical creativity, while Dave was content with the status quo and his fondness for cover tunes. And his ego must have been ever-sized by then. For his part, Eddie's ego was also running amok and manifested in his frustrations with songwriting credits and royalties, which would later result in Michael Anthony's name being removed from the songwriting credits of this album. Fuck you, Mike Anthony. Yeah, it all came to a head and Dave quit Van Halen, heading off to a solo career while the rest of the band regrouped with singer Sammy Hagar and continued on. It's debatable whether this eventually worked out for the best, but that's for other episodes to discuss. For me, 1984 is the album that introduced me to Van Halen, and I feel it's one of their strongest works. It does betray some pop leanings a band would, for better or worse, subsequently further explore, but it also has some badass guitar tracks done in the inimitable VH style. This is one of those life-changing records for me personally, and I give 1984 a 5. Such a shame that this ended the initial Roth era of the band and its magnificent chemistry, but I can't think of a better way to go out than with this fantastic final document of the mighty original Van Halen. Now we'd like to thank Mr. Tom Quee for coming on the podcast with us. I hope you had a good time. No, thank you. Thank you. It's so good to come on. And, you know, been a big fan of the podcast ever since you came on, Aaron. And, uh, yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you. So, Tom, why don't you tell our listeners about your podcast and give them some plugs. Let the listeners know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, if you've got a spare hour or so, I can go through every single one. Because two, I've got a problem, basically. I'm just addicted to doing them. So, yeah, uh, Alpha Metallica is probably of most interest to people where it's myself and a guest going through Metallica's entire discography in alphabetical order. I'm almost done with that. I think I'm going to be finished about November time. I'm on about 130-odd at the moment. Um, we just did uh, – well, we're about to do Form Within – uh, with Clint Wells from Metal Your Podcast, so to give you an idea where we are in the runnings. I do a battle rap podcast. If anyone's aware what battle rap is, don't flop URL, King of the Dark, you know, kind of competitive wordplay and insulting each other's mothers. It's quite a big niche scene. I'm really into it. I interview all the big players and stuff like that in the scene and do top five, top tens 
So check that out. Do a Tom Waits podcast called Down in the Hole. Myself and my old friend Sam were going through Tom Waits's. Well, we've gone through his entire discography, and now we're interviewing people associated with Waits. So um, I've interviewed this uh, Swedish multi-instrumentalist that was on quite a few Waits albums in the early 2000s. My co-hosts have interviewed Brain, who is Waits's current drummer and has been his drummer for the past 15 years. So we've got a lot of really cool interviews that I don't think most people have heard. So uh, yeah, go and check those out. If you're I interested. started listening to that podcast, Tom. It's excellent. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's on my, my on my list to check out because I, I love I love Tom Waits, man. So yeah, yeah that's, oh good. There's actually another one as well. I also, I did, it doesn't really exist anymore, but you can find it online. It's called Watching the Watchman. So myself, my friend Definition, uh, battle rapper, we reviewed all of Alan Moore's Watchmen graphic novel, and we're currently reviewing the terrible DC sequel called Doomsday Clock that's kind of not really got Alan Moore involved. It's kind of a horrible cash-in. But uh, yeah, check those out, guys. And uh, yeah, that's where, you, that's where you can find me. All right. All right. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Give us a shout. We'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Dave, you've got charisma. This is a silly question, but how's the weather there? Uh, not, I mean, yeah, fine. Sort of grayish. Yeah. It's been... <laughs> Quite a big heat wave in Europe recently, so uh, yeah, we've been here too. Yeah, I went to yeah. uh, Classic Rock Festival actually uh, last weekend in Wales and saw Finnegy, right. which was really cool. Nice. Um, now, who's in that band now? Only Scott. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's been flying and, the And they're still calling themselves Finnegy. Yeah, they were. Um, Black Star okay, Riders. so there's a difference between that and the Black Star Riders. Ah, uh, yeah, they used to be synonymous. But then they realised it was kind of diluting the brand, whatever, so they've respected the past. And this is like the 40th okay. anniversary of Black Rose. So we yeah. had to go out and see that, one of my favourite albums. So yeah, it was good. But it's still the same band, though? It's got uh, Ricky Warwick and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's good. some other guys in it, yeah. But it's uh, it, it was strong, actually. There was A lot of the bands on the lineup I didn't really know, even though I'm supposed to know them. Like, I never really listened to Uriah Heat much, <laughs> so... You know, yeah, um, yeah, they were okay, but um, there were some, there were some good bands, yeah. Yeah. yeah last night we saw uh, Iron Maiden. Oh yeah, I think so. I saw actually. Yeah, I saw the picture. That's uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Legacy of the Beast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always put on a good show. Yeah, and it's like a kind of great. I know it's for a video game, but it's like a greatest hits, isn't it, kind of thing? More or less, more or less. But kind yeah. of quite deep cuts actually, like a lot of the time. They, and, which they did, you know. I was pretty happy about that. You know, they, they, they played songs I'd never heard them play before. Mm. But and yet, you know, they're still older. They're older songs I really like. So yeah, I was I was really happy about that. 
Yeah, that's still so energetic, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alright, so, so, so Ray has the right how I feel? Yeah. Am I right? How about you? <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> my stomach's better than it was last time. That's, that's good. Yeah. Alright. I'm just talking to Tom. Right Ray, Ray. Hey, Ray. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, hey, no, good to meet you, man. How's it going? Likewise. Oh, no, I'm, I'm great. Well, this is definitely episode, so, yeah, uh, this should be good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, we should have the AC, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, we'll get started. Alright. Alright, here we go. I'll play an alarm more. I know, jeez. <laughs> I don't know what happens in the summer. Yeah. <laughs>